Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible is a who book, not a how book and not a what book, but the Bible is a who book. We're introducing a series in our Bible class where we're looking at what is the Bible and how do we read it. It's called 10 Things to Understand when you read the Bible. And the first thing that I want to point out in introducing this is today in our sermon. The Bible is a who book, meaning that the focus of what we are looking at when we open the scriptures, when we look at God's word, is who is it about? One of the first and most important questions in relation to this comes right out of the first chapters of Genesis. God creates a world, perfect and beautiful, completely ordered and designed according to his purpose. Then he places man into that world. He gives man his own image, presenting him as royalty to represent God in having rule over this world, in cultivating it and caring for it. But in chapter 3, it all goes astray. Things don't go according to God's design, and that royalty and that perfect rule of representing God in this world falls apart. Adam and Eve rebel. They go after something else because they've forgotten that this is about who, not what, and not how. So the most important question comes out, perhaps in the whole Bible, when God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and he says, where are you? I was reading a piece of paper that came, I found crumpled up in a recycling bin, the Lexington County Recycling Center, and I was dumping all my paper in the recycling bin, and there was a crumpled up banner that looked like it had come from some church event or Bible class, It said on the top of it, where have you seen God today? Then it outlined four things. Probably what people said, suggestions to the answer. And they said prayer, scripture, creation, and going for a walk. Four things. Prayer, scripture, creation, and going for a walk. And we see how that all fits together in this one account here from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. How this is about God going for a walk with his people. And they're not there. The place where he's supposed to meet them every day. And they're not there. Where have you seen God today? It's more about us actually being with God than it is just about where we're catching glimpses of him. It's where it all begins, walking with God in the garden. Have you ever tried to go for a walk with someone you don't like? Someone you don't trust? Someone you don't care about? Someone that's hurt you or someone who has done you wrong or someone you're afraid of? We can't go for walks with people we don't like or people we don't trust. 
That's why we tell our kids not to hold hands with strangers. And God says, where are you? Because Adam and Eve have lost that sense of trust in him. They're no longer able to go out and walk about in confidence with him. They're hiding. They're blaming each other. They're even blaming God. So the question, where are you, shows us that chapter 3 of Genesis is not about talking snakes. It's not about the doctrine of original sin. It's not about which tree and what type of fruit was found on it. Those are not the first things that we're learning. The first thing that we're learning is about who? God. When we read the Bible, we're reading a who book. But what happens when we read the Bible first as a what book or a how book? When we read the Bible as a what book, we're looking for what God is saying about what I can do and what I can't do. We start looking for those boundaries. Where has God drawn the lines? Is that a sin or isn't it a sin? Am I sinful or am I forgiven? And we're stepping up to that line and thinking, well, how close can I go before I've transgressed and stepped over? And what will happen if I do? And what about all those other people I've seen who have stepped over the line? And so the devil comes to Eve knowing this tendency of human beings with his temptation did God really say? And when Eve tries to answer the question, she says, well, God said we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but we may not eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall we touch it, lest we die. Now, what was the original command that God gave? When the tree was given... He said, you shall not eat from this tree. Did he say you shouldn't touch it? Why would Eve have added in this more precise way of looking at it? We're not going to eat from it. We're not going to touch it. We're not even going to go near it. Let's just put some yellow tape around it to be sure that we don't violate what God said. She's asking all the what questions. What does God want me to do? But she's missing out on who and why. Who gave the tree and why did he give it? Which is more about relationship. But if we focus on the Bible as a what book only, Paul warns us. He says, you become concerned with things like do not eat and do not touch. Maybe even do not smell the tree. But you've forgotten about God. When we approach this Bible, the Bible this way, we really don't need the whole Bible. If all we want to know is what I need to do today and what I can't do and how to make it right, and we forget about God, then really, do we need the Old Testament? Can't we really just get rid of the Old Testament because Jesus has come? We should probably keep the Gospels, at least one of them. We don't really need four, do we? I mean, with one gospel, we can know Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. But then again, the epistles say that too. And in fact, they teach us what it means. Paul will talk about the death of Christ on the cross. 
at length. So maybe we just need the epistles. Those were the letters given to the church. So we narrow it down. But we don't need all 13 of Paul's epistles, do we? Surely he said what he needed to say in one of those letters. So we say, we'll just take Romans. It's the longest letter in the Bible. It's the most in-depth about clearly outlining law and gospel and justification and faith. So we take Romans. But there's a problem with that. If we take Romans, we don't get the Lord's Supper. Because Paul doesn't mention the Lord's Supper in Romans. So that's not going to be enough, right? Because we're used to practicing the Lord's Supper. So we'll maybe take 1 Corinthians 2 because it comes up in chapter 11. But then we get to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians as we try to piece this together. And sure, it mentions the Lord's Supper and instructions on taking the Lord's Supper. But then we notice a little bit earlier in chapter 11, it also says something about hair. And we find out that Paul says that men shouldn't have long hair. Hmm. Well, what are we going to do with that passage? I haven't gotten a haircut in a while. I need to call Miss Ada. And how short does it need to be? See, if the Bible is just a what book, then we either are going to keep all the passages, and men are not allowed to have long hair, or we're going to pick and choose. So we start chopping it up into the chapters we can understand, into the parts that we want. But who gets left out? The Bible was never meant to be read this way. The Bible begins with a narrative. It's telling the story of how God made the world in the beginning and what happened to that relationship. He created man in the image of God, but he doesn't explain what that is. He doesn't have a doctrinal statement on the five characteristics of the image of God. No, he just said he gave him the image of God and he gave him dominion over creation because it was more about how man was relating to God in representing him in this world. How does humankind fulfill that calling? In the world. So, what does the serpent attack first? The relationship between Eve and God, the trust, and what it means to be like God. Instead of understanding, God already said, You are like me, I have made you in my likeness. He turns it into something else, that there's something more that they don't have. And so they usurp God, they take over on their own terms, and Adam stands complacently by. They forfeit their relationship with God in favor of a relationship with themselves, their own opinions, their own interpretations, and they fall into hiding. God says, where are you? How does that voice sound to them? How does that voice sound to you? Where are we supposed to be? Now, a lot of times we answer this question, we say, well, pastor, we know the answer. We're supposed to be in church. Is that what God means? When God asks the question, it's more than just being in church. 
when God asks a question, he's walking. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the daily walk with his disciples. And he says, where are you? Because where are you means you're supposed to be with me today. That's what the scriptures are getting after. That's what the Bible is telling us. This is about God. It's about how we relate to God. It's about how Adam and Eve relate to God. It's about how God provided everything, loved us, instructed us. And even though we rebelled, even though we fell, even though it became so corrupt that he had to wash mankind clean, he still is calling. He's still looking for you. He's looking for Abraham. When he calls out to him and says, I'm going to send you to a strange land you don't know, among people you don't know, in a place you're not familiar with, and it's going to be scary, but I will be with you. He's looking for Jacob, when Jacob has to run away from home because how he screwed up his life, and he's all alone, and he visits him in the wilderness and gives him a vision and tells him, I am with you. He's looking for the 12 sons of Jacob. When they've forsaken their brother and sent him off with slave traders into a prison for two years and they're coming back to try to find forgiveness. And he forgives them. He's with David when he commits adultery and murder and shames his whole kingdom and loses a child in the process. But then brings David to be the bearer of the seed and the promise of a Messiah. He is looking for Israel when they break the covenant, when they fall, so that he can redeem them by sending the ruler of Micah chapter 5. The one to be ruler in Israel, the one to shepherd God's people, the one to be peace. He finds his champion, the hero in the story, who will finally face the enemy that we cannot face up to, who will stomp on his head and put an end to his power. That's the story. And in Bible class, we've been exploring this. We just did this morning, the seven movements of the scripture, how the Bible is a unified story leading us to Jesus, how it's all tied to him, even today as we become part of that story, as the Holy Spirit becomes part of our lives, and God is bringing us always back to Jesus. God is always bringing us back to the rescuer, the one alone who can restore what's fallen, who can put us back to the place we should be with God. Someone once said to me, there's a difference between Practicing a religion and participating in a relationship. Practicing a religion for us is easy. We can be in church. We can even do the things we're supposed to do. We can even finally tune that religion to the point that we can really know that we've done all the things and we can know who hasn't. But practicing a religion is not the same as participating in a relationship. And church is about participating in a relationship, which is why we took some time at the beginning of the service to remember God is here. 
He's talking to us. He's working with us. He's calling to our heart. Everybody at the own, your own place where you're at, he is reaching out and saying, where are you? He's bringing us on the journey. He's bringing us through the story. And he'll keep on calling. He'll keep on being there for you. His word speaks to us powerfully when we're here, speaks to us personally, and participates us in a relationship. So may the Lord bless you as you consider his word, as you pray, as you listen for his voice calling to you and walking with you every day. Amen.